Blog Talk Radio. It's a great CD, and I love it, and I play this every Sunday. As many spiritual songs with Native American instruments and Gregorian chanting, unlike anything you've ever heard. If you want to order a copy, go ahead and contact Save.org, S-A-V-A-E. And uh, they're also on Facebook, and they do live shows, and you can listen to them anytime on YouTube for free. 
And they have a CD on Amazon. That's where I got my latest one. And uh, you can uh, get it there. And I'd like to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers. And God bless you very much. And uh, love you, Pops. He's in heaven. And I love him. And I want to thank him, along with my Uncle Louie and my Uncle Eddie and all the other uncles and fathers that stand in for other fathers. Anyway, I'm your host and friend, Reverend Sean McKinney. I'd like to welcome listeners to Sacred Sunday. Sacred Sunday was created to just focus on the tenet that Sunday is a special day to set aside some time for spiritual focus, meditation, and prayer. All faiths are welcome. I personally am a Christian in recovery, and all Bible readings will be out of the Ryrie Study Bible. And I found my original Bible uh, by the trash can, picked it up, and read it, and wore it out. And now I'm on my second one, a new one. Still in good shape. Anyway, you can use any Bible you wish. I've had many spiritual experiences, and in gratitude, uh, we just had these ongoing Bible readings, and we've made our way from uh, all the Gospels all the way through the Corinthians, and we're reading straight through to Revelation. So join us here every morning, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, Let's see, for opening prayer, as we bow our heads and take a deep breath, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you. And we pray for all the Christians being persecuted worldwide. Their freedom to worship and lives are in jeopardy, and those whose lives have been taken for distorted or evil reasons, and in my belief, they become martyrs, and they now pray for us. We pray for all those suffering from violence here at home also and abroad. We pray for those who are sick in both mind and body, and those who are lonely and uncomforted. Please, God, forgive us our sins. We pray for those suffering from domestic violence in their own homes, and freedom, we pray for freedom from addiction of all kinds. Please, God, send your Archangel Michael to fight against every evil and protect everyone and all your angels to watch over everybody. Our prayers go out all those who suffer in the world, including the animals that can't speak for themselves. We also pray for the wisdom of our president and the rest of our policymakers. They have many decisions to make, and we are praying for all countries for the problems of suffering for all over the world. Thank you, God. We ask Jesus to bless us and help us grow under his care. Everyone is in our families, and their families are in our prayers. Happy birthday to everybody who has a birthday today, and I have three birthdays that I know of. I want to say, first of all, happy birthday to my mother. I love you, Mom. Her birthday was yesterday. Okay, so Trish McBrager, Raven Mayfair, and Jocelyn Rentus. Happy birthday, and may you have a blessed and prosperous day ahead. And uh, love you very much, and have a wonderful year, and uh, with health, prosperity, and uh, awesome luck, and may God watch over you and your special birthday angel too. And if you would like us to celebrate your birthday or any other thing, just let us know. You can call at six one nine nine two four nine seven four four, and I may pick it up during showtime, or you can also write me, Sharon McCain, P.O. Box nine eight zero, Hermosa Beach, California. 
Okay, uh, if you don't have a Bible handy, there's two online resources, www.biblegateway.com and www.biblia.com. And we're going to read, we're actually on uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. So right now I'm going to read what was going on last week. And uh, Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians and letting them know he's heard all the rumors that have been going on. And this has been titled, last week's uh, Bible says titled Fifty Shades of Corinthians. Anyway, speaking of doing bad stuff, Paul's been hearing some rumors. There's some steamy stuff going on in the bedroom and he doesn't like it. He's heard that some guy is getting it on with his stepmother, how gross, and it also happens to be against the Jewish and Roman law. Paul is annoyed that the Corinthians still have this guy hanging around, and he needs to be a kicker of the church, pronto. Paul wishes he were there in person so he could help, but never fear all is there in spirit, and he has just passed judgment on this guy in spirit. This dude should be forced to live the rest of his life outside the church. Basically, they're going to throw him to Satan. Maybe if he suffers enough, God will save him in the end. Who knows, though? Anyway, this is heavy, but that's what he said. And then he's talking about a little yeast. Paul was extremely annoyed with the Corinthians' lax attitude about this stuff. Don't they know that even a little yeast can make the bread dough rise? Translation, one bad person can ruin a whole church. Boy, how many times have we seen that? It's time to clean those mixing bowls and start a new batch of dough. We're living in the Passover times, y'all. Jesus is a lamb that has been slaughtered, and so start acting like it. Paul thinks they need to be celebrating with some nice, pure, unleavened bread, not letting that evil yeast creep into their midst. It was harsh words, but Paul said it, and it's lived on for 2,000 years. Rules for being a Christian. Paul says that he wrote to the church before and told them not to have anything to do with immoral people. Of course, they misunderstood this. It would be kind of impossible not to associate yourself with anybody who had a history of doing bad things. You'd have to stop hanging around with me also. Anyway, you'd have to stop going outside your house. What he meant was, don't associate with other Christians who are immoral. Okay, good clarification. How do you know a fellow Christian is super bad like this? Well, are they sexually immoral? Are they greedy? Are they idolaters? Do they verbally abuse others? Are they drunks? Are they thieves? When you just cross them off your list, go get them out of the church. Judge the heck out of them. Wait a minute, Paul. Didn't you just say Corinthians not to judge a little bit of a go? Anyway, never mind. As we're going on to the next chapter, chapter 6, as we try to understand all this stuff, and my job is to just read it. So now we're on chapter 6, so let's get to the Bible and read chapter 6. It's talking about suing others. Chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that that we will judge the angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters in this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It it is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren 
but brother goes to the law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Ashley, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourself are wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. This is true. We all watch Judge Judy. The warning against moral laxity, or, now we're on verse 10, no, 9, excuse me. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived. Listen, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunks, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. I feel bad about the drunks because I'm actually a recovering alcoholic, so I hope that's not what he means. And I'm 34 years sober. Thank you, God. Anyway, we will inherit the kingdom of God. Where are some of you? But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Hmm. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up in his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take a, then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one with her? We even do... Excuse me, we even know that from the DNA test, that once somebody lays with somebody, their DNA is part of her forever, which is really strange. We now know the truth is in the DNA. Okay, let's go back. For he says that you shall become one flesh. Now we're on 17. On 17, but the one who joins himself with the Lord is one spirit with him. That's a saving grace. Flee immorality. Every other sin that man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been brought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. As we all strive for this, we have some harsh slapping around, but... I'm sure Paul loves us who could see to the future when so now Paul's in heaven. And uh we're here to decipher these things for ourselves and uh this made me happy because it's good to be told what you're supposed to be doing, wrong or right or you know, that's the way it is. Okay, let's go read the notes now. We're going back to six one, a case. Cases involving Property, not criminal cases, the state would try. And then two, the saints will judge the world. Because of our union with Christ, we will be associated with him in this judgment during the millennium. We will also judge angels, appoint them. Better, you are appointing them, expressing irony that believers would prefer to take their cases to unbelievers. Now, that's something to think about. A defeat. Going to court against a brother brings defeat because greed or vengeance win. Before the case is even heard, it is better to be wronged and take the loss. 
Okay, 6-9, this is a problem that a lot of people are going to have with this part. But keep an open mind. Both expressions refer to homosexuals, first to those who allow themselves to be used unnaturally, and the second to active homosexuals. Paul's warning is given against the background of incest, homosexuality, pedestrian, and other unnatural sexual vices that were prevalent among the Greeks and the Romans. Socrates in 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors practiced homosexuality. Paul did not want Christianity to be confused with these sects that permitted these things. 6.10, Paul, whose lifestyles exhibit wickedness, not fruit, show that they are unsaved and will therefore not inherit the kingdom of God. 6.11, washed, regenerated, sanctified, set apart for God's use. There are three aspects to sanctification. Positional sanctification possessed by every believer from the moment his conversion, his perfect standing in holiness, progressive sanctification, the daily growth in grace, coming in practice more and more set apart for God's use, and the ultimate sanctification, attained only when we're fully and completely set apart to God in heaven. And then uh, when Alan 6.12 are lawful, apparently some of them were trying to use their Christian freedom to justify their sins. Paul here insists that Christians' liberty is limited to two considerations. Is the practice expedient or helpful? And will or will it enslave? And I think that's that's what we all have to look at. And whatever we're doing, is it helpful or will it enslave us? It could be broke down as simple as that. Some were that were just as food in the stomach is necessary to go together, so the body and sexual indulgence go together. Not so, says Paul. Rather the body should always glorify the Lord. Adultery creates union, but not a marriage. That's 6.16. 6.18, flee immorality. Make it your habit to flee immorality. Joseph's reaction to the advances of Potiphar's wife uh, literally illustrates this principle. So that'll be on, if you want to look that up, it's Genesis 39.12. Your body is a temple, a sharp contrast to the temple of Aphrodite and Corinth, where the priestesses were prostitutes. 620, show God's character in your bodies. So it's as simple as that. And I would just leave my comments there because I didn't write the Bible. All I know is that I love many people that are different uh, sexual persuasions, and I'm judging not. I just know that uh, it's what we act like and who we hurt. And I'm going to stick with what the Bible says, of course. And uh other hand, I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to be angry with anybody if they don't believe the same way I do or if they don't live the same way I do because I can't even live up to the same as everybody else. Anyway, thank you, God, for helping us go through that this morning. And I wasn't looking forward to that, even though it, it when I read the Bible, it makes me very happy and I get smacked down and put it in my place, but it's... uh if I'm on the narrow road, I'm a happier person. That's just the way it is. And I plan to uh, stay that way and just keep trying every day to improve. And I humbly, humbly every Sunday to the Word and um, try to do the best I can. So uh, today I'm going to read another story. And let me see... I haven't picked one straight out yet. 
So let's see. Okay, have um. Okay, so this one is Partners in a Dream. It's actually by Martha Hawkins, Montgomery, Alabama. My eyes were barely higher than the long, broad stretch of the butcher block counter my mother worked over in the kitchen of our rural Alabama home. Her hands moving like magic, chopping okra, snapping teas, seeding peppers, stripping corn. Each action, each movement was deft with a confidence that can only come from the love of the work. My mother loved cooking the way some people love poetry. As she worked, she often hummed hymns and spirituals, a deep, resonant counterpoint to the darting movement of her dark, gifted hands. I watched everything she did, and I learned. I dreamed someday. Someday I told her I'm going to open a restaurant where folks can come and sit and talk and eat good, honest food and enjoy themselves, just as if they were coming over to my house. This was my dream. Most of the people who knew me, including my son, smiled indulgently whenever I spoke of it. Mama, they asked, how are you going to do that? The answer hung in the air like a wordless accusation. How am I going to do anything that I can't even take care of myself? There was a little time between a dream that seemed far away as the moon. My life had taken some pretty hard turns, but none harder than the summer day in 1979 when I sat on the edge of my bed and stared at a handful of sleeping pills. We lived in Montgomery's teeming 10 home court housing projects, but that steamy gray morning, I could hear nothing but the silent, taunting pain of my own life. I was 31 and tired, so tired I just wanted to sleep forever. I was married when I was 16. I cried like a baby on my wedding night because it was the first time I'd ever been away from home. I was the youngest of 12 brothers and sisters. My father was a farm laborer, so we were poor and dependent on my mother's poetry in the kitchen to keep body and soul together. My mother always managed to keep us healthy and fed. The Lord provides, Martha, was the only explanation I got. I had four boys and a divorce degree by the time I was 23. My husband, who was in the Air Force, and I had drifted apart. After all, we had been so young when we started. Martha, we're just not the same two people anymore, Ruben told me. I started working at the kind of jobs that were left for a woman who drops out of school in 10th grade. I cleaned houses for a while. I was a seamstress. I got a job working at factory that paid pretty well and had enough shifts open so I could juggle raising my boys and earning a paycheck. But it was a terrible struggle. As the years passed, I felt myself giving out. The financial strain of a single parenthood and all the worry about protecting my children from the evils of the street took a mean toll on me. I saw that what happened to children when we lived, it scared me something awful. My health began to deteriorate. I developed kidney problems. My appendix ruptured. It was one thing after another. I started to feel tired all the time. I remember a morning when I just lay in bed staring at my phones, unable to move. That's all right, Mom, my oldest John said. We'll help you. It's not a child's place to care for his mother. You're a failure, Martha. I began to chide myself. Even church, which has always been a refuge, could no longer comfort me. I stopped going, telling myself my faith would never amount to much anyway. Like everything else about me, I thought. I was even disappointed to God. There was a horrible ache inside me, someplace no doctor or medicine could touch. I cried for days at a time, refusing to leave the house. 
1976, I was hospitalized for a nervous breakdown and received electric shock therapy for depression. Still, I sank deeper into despair and self-blame. I went on disability and public assistance. Martha, look at yourself. You haven't done a thing with your life but fail. That day came in 1971 when I gulped down a handful of pills and lay back on my bed, hoping never to wake up. It seemed so easy, so right. No more pain, I thought, as a cold, smothering grayness overtook me. The next thing I knew, Sean was standing over the bed with his school books, crying, Mom, Mom, Mom. They rushed me to the emergency room where the doctors pumped my stomach. When I woke up in Greel Memorial Psychiatric Hospital, I felt more alive a failure than ever before. One afternoon, a few days later, I was sitting alone in my room when I pulled open a drawer on the nightstand. Inside was a pale blue Gideon Bible. I knew about the Bible, but I had never really sat down and read it. I I mean, really read it. I picked it up out of the drawer and dropped it on the bed where it bounced open to Isaiah 61. A verse jumped out at me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me? What did that mean? I felt scared. I flipped the Bible closed. It fell open again to the same verse. I picked it up and looked, and it felt so good in my hands, so solid and alive. I didn't want to go of it, let go of it ever. I started to read day in and day. I consumed that Bible, every cleansing, life-changing word in it, and it consumed me like a new love. I could not get enough. When my doctor, Dr. Case, visited, I told him, there's nothing you can do. I have to help myself because I'm the problem. Then pointing to the Bible, I said, this is my solution. As I read the gospel, I began writing letters to Jesus. I called them love letters, and I emptied my heart out of all sorrow, fear, loneliness, and shame. How could I ever have tried to take my own life? Christ has already done the dying for me so I could live. When I was finally released from the hospital, I returned to the housing project and to welfare, but I was on my way up this time. I found some part-time work, and before me, I saw a dream of watching my mother in the kitchen and a cozy old house, my house, where the folks would come over and sit and talk and eat good, honest food. God, I renewed my dream, and I talked about it to everyone I could. That was when my boy smiled and just shook their heads, Mama. They didn't think it was so bad when I drove up to college and gave them their friends with some home cooking. I get half looking for a meal, and when I cooked, I felt whole. I felt part of creation. With three of my boys in college scholarships, I decided it was high time I did something about my own education. So I went back to school, got my GED, and took some night courses at Troy State University. I kept thinking about that restaurant and talking about it. It takes lots of money to start a business, and I was barely getting by on cleaning houses. I applied for loans at some of the local banks, but with no luck. One manager said to me, Martha, what you need is a business partner, someone who would handle the financial side of it. I told him that I already had a partner, God, and that he would look after what I couldn't do for myself. Though my, through my cleaning, I met a nice lawyer, Calvin Pryor, and I told him all about my dream. One day, he led me over to 48 Sayre Street, a beige frame house of the turn of the century, a bit down the heels, but solid, differently solid and familiar. It was a house for my dreams. The minute I set eyes on it, I knew, it's a bit run down, Martha. It'll take work, but you can have it. 
rent-free for a while until you get on your feet. I saved my money and bought paint and wallpaper a little at a time and went to work. If I ran out of paint, I baked a couple of pies, sold them, and bought another gallon. My sons and other relatives began hiding from me on weekends for fear I'd press them into service, and I did too. I combed yard sales for tables, chairs, dishes, and silverware. I sewed napkins and curtains. There were times when I felt low when it seemed like I would never get my dream. I remember one day that I sat down on the floor and just cried until I cried myself dry. Then I remembered Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I got my Bible and I put it down on the floor, right in the middle of the half-paper dining room. I slipped off my shoes and carefully stepped up on my Bible. Lord, I cried out loud, I'm standing here on the foundation of your word. You love me and I am not alone. The Lord had promised me he would be with me and I would never let myself forget that promise. With him, I could do all things, but only with him. On a fine day in October 1988, Martha's finally opened for business, and we've been going strong ever since, giving people the kind of food, good food, nourishing southern home cooking that I learned from my mother and she from hers. I still have problems these days, but they are good problems, the problems of running a successful business. You see, I'm no longer the problem. I am blessed, blessed, blessed. Every morning at 4 o'clock in my kitchen, I'm chopping greens, baking cornbread, boiling turnips. It's the most peaceful hour of my day, and I'm alone with my cooking and alone with my Lord. Because when I work, I feel the Lord. That work is a gift to me, and I feel the food in my hands. I feel his blessings all through me. I want my customers to feel that, too. There's no fancy about Martha's place, but it's mine, mine and my partner's. I thank you, God, for that story. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as we think about Martha Hawkins in Montgomery, Alabama, let's think about ourselves and our dreams, that we never give up on our dreams. I have a dream. I want to help children. I want to foster them. I want to buy a house in North Carolina. I want to have a few chickens and little animals, maybe a couple little goats and little dogs running around. I want a place to foster children where they feel safe and loved and comforted. That's what my dream is. I thank you, God, for listening today. And I thank you, all you, everybody for listening and tuning in. And I love that you, people tell me they're listening in archives, and I appreciate you very much. And I want to thank you. Thank you for being with us every weekend. So next week we'll go on to Chapter 7. In First Corinthians, more lessons. In closing, let's say the serenity prayer after a moment of silence for those who are still out there suffering and those who are suffering inside. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. And in closing, may God bless and keep you in his loving arms so that you may have the strength to face whatever's ahead. Remember, you're never alone. God loves you, and may your best dreams come true and you find the true love that you're looking for. You may message me with any concerns or requests for prayers or you need to discuss something if you would like to be a special Sunday morning speaker, because we're open for that. So goodbye, my friends. Happy trails to you. God bless you. Amen. <laughs>